Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley, and I'm her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi and I want to welcome you to Open to Hope Conversations, the podcast. We believe that the greatest gift you can give yourself after a loss is hope, using this moment to connect with others who have not only survived, but thrived. So let's get started. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley. And today I have my fabulous partner and co-host, Dr. Frank Powers, who is also a psychologist. And we are going to have Peggy DeLong on the show today. Hi, Peggy. Hello, thank you for having me. It's gonna be great. She's one of our wonderful Open to Hope authors and she is a very accomplished psychologist, author and speaker. And she assists individuals and groups in fostering gratitude and joy in everyday living, including while grieving. And she's got a signature program for widows, Frank. Wow. Yeah. Yes. And, and I heard that she and her mom were actually widows together and that they supported one another. Wow. Yeah. That's going to be interesting to talk about. Those widow groups must be incredible. She's also written a lot of books, a memoir about love and grief and gratitude and it's called I Can Speak Clearly Now. She does a gratitude journal, a 365-day gratitude journey. And she's also written What Feeling Good, 35 Proven Ways for Happiness. And she owns Love Bracelet, where she designs bracelets for coping with grief and loss. You're very busy. <laughs> very busy. And a, and a mother of three young adults. Were you a therapist when your fiance died? No. Well, I mean, sort of. I had just completed my master, my first master's degree, and that was a terminal master's degree. I wasn't quite ready to start a doctoral program, so I took a, a year or two off, and I was in the midst of applying to doctoral programs. So I had six interviews. I was all um, excited that six places wanted to interview me, and I only had one interview before his diagnosis. The other five took immediately some the day of his diagnosis of cancer and then um, within that week. So the timing was just awful. And I was supposed to start, he took a turn for the worst and they said that he was going to die. And I wanted to be by his side every minute while he was in the hospital. So I deferred, my program allowed me to defer for a year. And then I just started a year later. So I, I didn't um, start my formal training until a year, about a year after he died. And you and were then I, around 25 at that time? Uh, I was 26 when he passed away. Six weeks after my fiance died, my father died. My fiance was Scott and my father, Bill. And he was uh, a beloved psychiatrist. Everybody adored my father and, and my fiance. They were two peas in a pod. And I think that, you know, they some say that some people die of a broken heart. I really believe that's what happened to my father. During my grief, um, I, I moved back home. I couldn't bear to be in the apartment that I shared with my fiance. So I moved back home to my uh, childhood home and my childhood bedroom with the pink rug and all. And yeah. it was so comforting to be back in that bedroom. And I remember clearly one conversation I had with my father about how he was coping with my fiance's death. 
And, and he said that part of what helped him was that he knew my fiance would not want him to be sad. And then he kind of shift the, shifted the mood. And he said in a very jovial kind of way, you know, you know, if I have it my way, I'm going to die on a chairlift. And I said, Dad, why a chairlift? Maybe you're skiing and hit a tree, but at least you're skiing. And he said, no, a chairlift. That's where I feel closest to God, breathing yeah. in the cool mountain air. Mm. Well, two weeks later, my father died on a chairlift. Oh my, oh my God! Wow. That, so that even yeah. though he was so young, he was only fifty-eight, and way too soon, um, he had a heart attack on a chairlift. But oh it was God. such a comfort to my family that he that that was the way he wanted to die, and that he shared that with me just two weeks earlier. Mm-hmm. So even though it was a really difficult time, we were still gr- only six weeks later, um, you know, grieving the loss of my fiance. And so my mother and I were two young widows together. I was 26 and she was 52. Were you disfranchised at all because he was a fiance and not a spouse? I never felt that way, thankfully. I, I, and I feel that way now. And there, um, there is no word in the English language for uh, something comparable to the loss of a fiance. You know, there's widow, and we think that of, of marriage. And so I have always used that word, and I felt like we were married. It was just a date that he died before we got to that date. We proceeded with everything as if we were going to be married. Uh, we had our music, our our wedding song picked out, which actually became his funeral song, I can see clearly now. Mm-hmm. Ironically, the words were, we thought we would he would be in remission, and we thought the words would be perfect for celebrating his remission. And ironically, the words were even more fitting for his funeral. And the lyrics um, are perfect, and they're also perfect for the title of my book, I can see clearly now. Yeah, oh, wow. Well. So um, talk to us a little bit about about the dating scene with you and your mother. Yeah, that must have been interesting. (laughs) It was very interesting. Um, I, two weeks after my fiance died, I started going to a bereavement group that had, um, that was ongoing. And I was very grateful that it was available to me right away. And that group was tremendously helpful. And then after my father died, I suggested that my mother join me. And I remember being in the parking lot and literally having to tug on her arm to get her out of the car. She didn't want to go. Neither of us felt like we belonged there. It had, you know, so much had happened. The two men in our lives earlier in that year were vibrant, laughing. We were just so full of love and joy. And here they are both gone. It was really um, hard to comprehend. So I remember being in the dark and, and tugging on her to get out of the car. Now, my mother was an aerobics instructor and a vibrant young 52, uh, drop dead gorgeous 52. So when she walked into that bereavement group, I saw all the men's heads turn and it was very uncomfortable. It was a really, so I'm grieving my father, my mother's grieving her partner, and there was a lot of interest in her. She left that first meeting with two uh, men asking her on a date. (laughs) And one of them was very persistent, and they've now been married for 23 years. Wow. Wow. It is quite a story. And and it doesn't stop there. It's really interesting. We I remember um the we shared the funeral home with another family, and my fiance's um wake was very vibrant, uh full of laughter. His friends from high school, college, and his job in New York City. There, it, there was so much um youthful energy 
with a lot of laughter and sharing stories. And I remembered feeling sad for the other family that that was very somber and a, and a smaller gathering. And years later, I found out that that is, was my mother's husband's family. His wife died on the same day that my fiance died and we shared the funeral home with them on that day. The so secrecy in your life is just amazing. It, it is. And it and that is part of my gratitude and how I know with certainty that there's so much more to this world than we see or can understand. And because things like this happen in my life all the time. What do you see with the widows that you work with at HEAL? Um, are they widows and widowers or just widows? Uh, you... Just Just widows. And I started the program initially with all types of grief, but then I just found that I can speak most to the, the widow and, and with my story. Um, so I have narrowed it down to just working with nittos, widows, and I feel like it's it's more powerful and meaningful for everybody. I might expand in the future, but that's what I'm doing for, uh, for now. And I discovered the power of gratitude by accident. I know I was a uh, an ungrateful teen. I was an ungrateful young adult. Mm -hmm. I had so much to be grateful for, but I didn't appreciate much of anything because I was too busy comparing myself to other people who I perceived as having more. But so I felt like a, a have not um, when I really that was just all in my mind. And it took tragedy. It took my fiance's diagnosis and death to um, open my eyes up to the power of gratitude. And that happened during the last days of his life when the doctors said that there was nothing left that they could do for him and that he was going to die. I sat by him for 42 days in the hospital. And every day was so unpredictable. I didn't know if he was going to die that day. I didn't know if he'd be open, you know, able to open his eyes and look at me or speak my name. Some days he was, you know, incoherent and couldn't speak. So I never knew what each day was going to bring, including whether or not that was going to be the day that he died. But one thing that was predictable that was that I could get a cup of hazelnut coffee. After all of the visitors would leave at 8 p.m., I was allowed to stay as his fiance, and I would drink a cup of coffee and, and uh, sip, take a sip and write in my journal, sip and write in my journal, and that cup of coffee brought me so much comfort. When everything else was turned upside down and unpredictable, I, it was that predictability of that cup of coffee that got me through. It was the one thing I could rely upon. And I didn't understand when I was 26 years old that what I was doing was practicing gratitude. I, I really had no idea why that cup of coffee was so powerful. Oh, I would wrap my hands around the, the, the styrofoam cup and it, the warmth brought me comfort. It reminded me of being home and the love of my, my childhood home. The aroma made his uh, hospital room seem less sterile. Mm -hmm. There was so much about it that brought me comfort. And in hindsight, I figured out that what I was doing was practicing gratitude. So if I figured if I can find gratitude and healing in a simple cup of hazelnut coffee on my worst days, then I can help other people do the same. And one of my favorite quotes is to not save gratitude for the good days, that gratitude is truly most powerful on our worst day. So that has really become my mission and the framework of just about everything that I do is with gratitude. Okay, let me ask you a question. I, I sometimes feel that there are people in the grief world who really don't want to go that direction because yeah. there it's some kind of a separation 
from that person if they don't feel that constant they, they feel guilty about having gratitude around someone's death they feel like i shouldn't feel gratitude and so i'm really curious about whether you've been able to find that gratitude resonates with people who are working on in the grief area Yes, absolutely. Um, because whenever I'm talking about gratitude, I always say that it's never at the expense of ignoring your emotional pain. Mm -hmm. That needs to come first. Um, otherwise, we can get into what might be referred to as toxic positivity. So it's allowing yourself to grieve, allowing yourself to feel the, the fullness of that awful gut-wrenching grief. And gratitude is one way to move forward and not get stuck there. So it's it's never about gratitude that somebody passed away. It's gratitude for anything that you can find in those moments. Some days it might be a cup of hazelnut coffee. There were other days that I was grateful for all of the love that came my way and his way. So whenever we can find one simple thing to be grateful for, it is one way to help move forward after we have allowed ourselves to feel pain. And I think that knowing some tools to help move forward, it's just so powerful because you know grief can be um, just so intense and scary. And on the days that are really heavy, uh, it's scary to think that that might happen again, the depth of that grief. So no, having some simple tools, and gratitude is my favorite one, to allow yourself to feel the fullness of the pain and to trust that you're not going to get stuck there. Because what happens when we avoid pain is we become numb. It's very similar to uh, general anesthesia. When we have surgery, we don't get to pick and choose what body parts go numb when we need general anesthesia. The same thing with emotional numbing. When we numb ourselves to pain, we also unwittingly numb ourselves to joy and we don't get to feel the fullness of joy. And it doesn't happen immediately, but trusting yeah, that joy- stop with that for a minute. Oh, sure, it sure. It happen immediately. I mean- yeah, yes. I, you know, how when, long when is the take? time yeah. to bring gratitude into the process? Well, I think gratitude in, can start immediately and it can, it can truly help immediately. For example, I remember, you know, those first days waking up when the brain some days hadn't caught up to the fact that he had died and it, those split seconds that my brain would trick me that he was still alive. And then it was almost like reliving the loss all over again, allowing myself to experience that, but then using some form of gratitude to move forward in the morning, especially you know, for many people, um, grief can feel heaviest in the morning and heaviest right before bedtime. And simply thinking about one simple thing um, that is positive can help to just shift the trajectory of the day so the entire day doesn't feel heavy. Mm -hmm. And so it can happen immediately. So that mo those moments of gratitude can happen immediately. It might not immediately translate to joy or happiness. I think that uh, would be a completely unrealistic expectation to be happy. But there are brief moments of joy. And during grief is when we need to harness those brief moments as more than ever. And they, they're there. And it's not a betrayal to our loved one to experience them. That was something my father taught me when he talked about what was helping him. He said that he knew that my fiance would not want him to be sad, wouldn't want me to be sad. So then when my father died suddenly after that, 
then I felt like that was those were words that my father was continuing to tell me, only it wasn't now just for my fiance. Now it was also for my father that he my father now would want not want me to be sad. And sometimes I think that not experiencing joy when it comes naturally is more of a betrayal than experiencing joy. Yeah, <laughs> that's not an experience. important point. I, I really glad to hear you say that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've got five uh, quick exercises that people can do. I think it might be good to give people those uh, five tips because mm -hmm. they're pretty simple and great. Yes, they're so simple and doable, and they don't need to take any more than five minutes a day. And the first is simply to say the two words, thank you, upon waking in the morning. And this isn't about an exercise in thinking about what you're grateful for. It's simply the words, thank you, because through the power of language, all of our lives, those two words are associated with positivity. You know, we thank people for nice things. We don't thank people for crummy things. So automatically the brain goes to the positive simply by saying thank you out loud before your feet hit the floor. So that helps to prevent that spiraling out of control, that the heaviness of grief or, or negative thoughts, it just can prevent that from spiraling out of control. And that might take maybe two seconds to say thank you out loud. The next exercise is to set your intention at the beginning of the day to be more aware of your blessings. And that can just also help to um, ward off the, the heaviness of grief. And once again, I always like to say it's not to avoid feeling grief. It's, it's just so that it doesn't permeate the entire day. And by setting your intention, that could be while you're brushing your teeth, while you're in the shower, just using some self-talk. I'm going to be more aware of one simple blessing today. I'm going to highlight something positive that happens in my life today. Just some type of self-talk like that. And that might that doesn't need to take any more time because you can actually do that exercise while you're already doing something that you do every morning. And I like to use the door frame of my bedroom as a reminder to ask myself, have I set my intention? of the day yet because once we leave our bedroom then we have other responsibilities um whether it's email the phone the dog like all everything else but be while we're in our room that's our time and we get to choose how we spend those moments so it's much less likely to happen once we step out that door the third exercise is to express appreciation for one person every day. It can be a simple 30-second text. It could be a handwritten thank you note in whatever way that feels comfortable. And this is a powerful exercise because the number one predictor of happiness in life is our human relationships. And while we're grieving, we might hope and wish for it to come our way, but that's that doesn't always happen. We can't control what comes our way, what phone calls come, what letters come. We have no control over that. But what we do have control over is how we reach out to other people. And that helps us to feel good. It fosters the connection. It makes the other person feel good. So, um, and, it, and it's just time well spent because anything that we do to foster human relationships is a strong predictor of happiness in the moment and for the future. And that can take maybe 30 seconds on a difficult day or five or 10 minutes on uh, if you have more uh, emotional energy to handwrite a letter and send it in the mail.
The fourth exercise is probably the most difficult, and that is to use your emotional pain as a trigger to practice gratitude. Mm -hmm. So that is allowing yourself to feel grief, feel whatever emotion might be, betrayal, disappointment, and then using gratitude as a way to move forward, to not get stuck there. So to look for a silver lining, to look for a lesson. And when that's too difficult, I like to look for the underlying value. So normally we experience some type of emotional pain due to the existence of a positive value. So then the goal, the, the task then becomes looking for that value. For example, with grief, we wouldn't have grief at all if we didn't have the value of love or special relationships. Mm -hmm. Another example would be guilt in parenting. We wouldn't experience any guilt as a parent if we didn't value being a present parent. So look for the value. And with grief, that value is love or, or maybe something else, but, and then find a way to enact that value for the day, be that. So that's one way to use uh, emotional pain as a trigger to practice gratitude. And then the fifth exercise is at the end of the day, when your head hits the pillow, to think about two things, or if, if, if you're lacking in energy, then even one is powerful, one or two things that happened that day that went well, that you're grateful for, that made you feel good. And this is a powerful exercise right before bed, because that can feel, that's often when grief is the heaviest, because we might be alone. We uh, might not be able to, at, at uh, 11 o'clock or, or 12 midnight, reach out to that best friend who's always so supportive. Many times that's when the, um, the worry thoughts come crushing in, and we can just feel um, the most vulnerable when it's dark and we don't have something else that we're actively engaged in, in that moment, we're trying to fall asleep. So we're not reading a book. We're not looking at television where our, our brains are quieting. And that's when the, the worry thoughts can rush in. And by focusing intentionally on something positive that helps to um, just uh, make us feel better. And what we last focus on we tend to bring that into our sleep. So if we keep it positive, it also just helps to facilitate more restful sleep. How do I start? I would say keep it simple. For me, it was hazelnut coffee on the worst days of my life. You know, my the doctor said he was going to die, and I had to sit there and and as was my privilege to be with him. But I found it in hazelnut coffee. So release the idea that it needs to be something huge focus on something so simple that is bringing you joy on your worst day that might be gratitude for a best friend that could be that you had a warm bed to sleep in that could be your favorite beverage it could be somebody that came out of the blue that is supporting you through a difficult time um, keep it simple our brains can't tell the difference whether we're um grateful for something huge or small we get to assign meaning to it so even being grateful for a beautiful blue sky that we have no control over or just the the uh intensity of green and a blade of grass it we get to assign meaning so keeping it simple is one way to alleviate that overwhelm that can you know when our brains aren't working properly while we're grieving so keep it simple keep it simple and then Get one of your books, go to your website, <laughs> tell us where people can find you, get a bracelet to remind you. Yes, uh, everything can be found at my website, drpeggydelong.com.
Well, Peggy, thank you so much for being yes. on our show today. And I know uh, a lot of wisdom lot of from you, Peggy. Thanks. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks everybody for joining us on this show today. And Frank and I and all of our Open to Hope family want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please lean on ours until you find your own. And God bless. God bless. I'm Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more, visit us at opentohope.com and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Join us again next week for another Open to Hope conversation where we invite you to lean on our hope until you find your own.